0: All right, here we are, February 7, 2024, back with Munitions Podcast. Steve Palmer here with Derek DeBrass on the other end of the airwave spectrum. I got Derek out there. How you doing, man?
1: I'm doing all right, Steve. It's been uh, been a minute, but... We're here. We're still working, and uh, the year is now started, and we're off to a fast start.
0: Yeah, you know the sad part about having real jobs is that we can't just sit here and talk about guns on the air all the time. But uh, we are getting our episodes out, and there's lots to cover today. So, uh, oh, the best news of the day, of course, is that we now have our website. The long promised. Uh, <laughs> website munitionspodcast.com munitionspodcast.com. And why do you want to go to the website? Well, I mean, come on, you can get all the backlog of episodes all packaged up neatly in a bow right there at munitionspodcast.com. You can just hit subscribe and it'll take you to the place where you would always or where you would want to subscribe to any podcast. Uh, and then you know, we're featuring uh bios of our guests. You can see Derek's bio, my bio. It's just a great place to uh, go check out the show and the content. So <laughs> munitionspodcast.com up on the internet. Um, so those who have been following our show, and, and by the way, Derek, I had somebody come into my uh, studio not too long ago that said he's, he'd been listening to the show, totally unrelated. So the, the, yeah, words, right. the word's getting out. But those who have been following the show uh, know that we cover things, all things guns, but uh, with a little bit of a legal bent. And, you know, lately there's been so much going on with the regulatory scheme of things. And I know last time we talked a little bit about Um, what ATF does, Biden, President Biden's rulemaking authority, and generally speaking, the executive branch of government and the administrative branch of government, aka the deep state, uh, regulating guns and changing the rules as we speak. And and what I mean by this, this is my pet peeve. So I'm going to go off and then I'm going to let Derek talk about this new Biden policy. But my pet peeve is that we are basically a country now on the brink of being governed only by bureaucratic administrators. So you have uh, uh, ATF officials or anybody in any administrative body, whether it's FDA, ATF, FFA, um, changing the rules, basically writing rules. And I'm not talking about going into Congress where there's a debate on the on the legislative floor where uh, people are screaming and yelling at each other and talking about things. I'm talking about like behind closed doors somewhere in D.C. in a bureaucratic agency and office, people just decide we're going to rewrite the rules and um, if you think i'm exaggerating i am not that that crap goes on and that it, it's uh, we talked a little bit about the chevron doctrine last time and basically what that means is courts have generally given deference to what the administrative rulemaking powers are or what the rulemaking power or rulemaking bodies do the rules they make saying look we're going to defer to them they're the experts but there was a recent case the what i'll call the new england fisherman case in the us supreme court where it looks like the chevron deference doctrine Maybe in significant jeopardy, and that's good for all of us who like our country the way it was supposed to be. Um, so, along these lines, and just carrying on with our, our sort of string of topics, uh, Derek, tell us what the latest is, because this is this is really this really shows itself the most, I think, or maybe not the most, but in a, in a very significant way in the context of gun regulation, because it's so easy for Biden or the executive branch of government to to just create rules on us and change the rules. So, Derek, take it away.
1: Sure, thanks, Steve. So you know they're not coming for your guns, but they are. Right, right. <laughs> this has been the whole the whole theme under the Biden administration, right? We're not coming for your guns. We respect the Second Amendment, but we don't. <laughs> um, you know, this started uh, I would say years ago, really. Um, but when they passed the what, what the heck is that law called that Biden passed the uh, Bipartisan Safer Communities Act? Do you remember that? I mean, yeah, about the a year ago Orwellian
0: Bipartisan Safer. Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: So so traditionally, when we look at the licensing scheme, which started to take effect, if I remember correctly, in 1938 under the Firearms Federal Firearms Act, the FFA, uh, which has now been rolled into the Gun Control Act. But under the FFA, we created this licensing scheme. And how it's evolved is that you needed a license if you were in the business of selling guns. Well, what's the natural question from that, Steve? What do you think it is?
0: Hold on, hold on. Repeat that again.
1: Sure. So what the licensing scheme essentially says, to paraphrase, is if you are in the business of selling guns. You need a license. So, what, what's right. the national derivative question from that?
0: Right. So, you, it, any any normal citizen taking that at face value is going to say, "Well, that means if I'm if I got a gun store and I'm a guy right. that uh, uh, makes right. my living buying and selling guns at a gun store."
1: Right. So, the question is, is what does it mean to be in the business of selling guns? So, traditionally and historically, for almost all my career until last year, it meant uh, one that your principal objective was to not only make a profit but also to make a livelihood so we would get these cases in federal court when i did a lot more criminal law where people were selling too many guns in the etf's opinion they would charge them with a federal crime selling guns without a license and the first thing i would do is say well one do you have a job and two how much money did you make on these guns and if it was below the poverty line or if any profit at all i would say he's not making a livelihood right um so what they changed was they kind of took out, they didn't, kind of they absolutely did take out the livelihood component and now it's basically if your principal objective Is for profit so anytime let's say you have an old car and it's just time for you to upgrade steve i mean isn't your objective to sell the car and obviously make money if you can
0: yeah and and here's where the orwellian language sort of tricks you because you would like the normal people would say for profit well that means that you're just selling guns day in and day out for profit like you're trying to make money selling guns but they're not interpreting it that way or at least that doesn't seem the way it's going so you're you're saying selling for profit means i'd like to make money i'd like to make more on this gun than what i bought it for and so it's an individual thing so if i'm selling you a gun derek that i bought five years ago at vance's gun store here in town for 500 bucks and say the value of that gun for one reason or another has gone up to 600 bucks and i sell it to you for 600 because that's a fair market value uh i'm selling it at a profit and theoretically uh, that qualifies, right? Is that what we're getting
1: at? Potentially, right? I think the language, and forgive me, I don't have the exact language in front of me, but it has it has a precursor, some prefatory language. that says like principal objective, right? So it's not just like if your intent is to make profit, it's like if your principal objective is to make profit. So I'd have to look at the language exactly. I'm trying to find it. Forgive me, guys. I should have had this in but front of me. What, I apologize. While
0: you're doing that, think of the play in the joints, though. Principal objective or intent. I mean, look, if I'm going to sell something, I've I have stuff in my garage and. Say it's um, worth more than what I paid for it. It's a collector's item. You know, my principal objective is to sell it for more than I paid for it because that's what we do in America, in American capitalistic society. And and anybody who doesn't want to do that, well, then go donate your junk. But this is, you know, we are selling things day in and day out with the idea, man, it'd be great if I could sell this for more than I paid for it. Um, Now the question is, does that make me in the business of buying and selling guns? And uh, this is where the play in the joints gets dangerous because if you, there's enough wiggle room in this definitional structure for somebody to interpret this, that to say, no, you are in the business because the definitional structure says you're selling guns at a profit. And therefore now you're going to qualify and you should have, you have to have a license or go through an FFL to sell it. So take it away.
1: So this is what it says. um, Dealing in firearms to predominantly earn a profit, predominantly earn a profit. Um, so again, they've taken out the livelihood component. So now where we're at is how does ATF, given what we're discussing, right? This ambiguity and what the heck does that mean? This gives ATF, the bureaucrats, a playing field, right? It gives them room to run.
0: So if I'm and Biden so, and I want to say, hey, look, ATF, go not, go stop sales of private guns or S- private sales of guns, Derek, how do they do it with this language?
1: Well, that's what's up. That's what we're discussing, right? So. Apparently, this this nonprofit whistleblower uh, organization—I got their name, I had it up here. Um, Anyways, there's articles on this. I think it's Empower Oversight is what it's called. Um, They they got some whistleblowers at ATF to basically tell them. Now, remember, these are people from ATF. If ATF is basically ratting themselves out, there's a problem, right? (laughs) Like this is bad. So ultimately, they were given information that there's a 1300 page memo that justifies within the White House and Biden administration why any transfer sale of guns between private citizens without a license would violate this this law, like all sales. So if you you came to my house and you like my Glock 19 you know, you know, and I say, you know, I'm just trying to liquidate my my collection. I don't really need this anymore. Why do not you give me 400 bucks for it? the way i understand the scuttlebutt again this is all rumor right now nothing's actually been officially released by the white house but the way i understand what the etf whistleblowers are saying to this organization and power oversight is that even those types of sales and transfers between private individuals that traditionally has been lawful would be deemed a federal felony uh, under under um, the new safer communities bipartisan safer communities act
0: because they would be selling guns without a license
1: Right. And so the way ATF is going to interpret the Bipartisan State for Communities Act where it says predominantly inter-profit is that that would apply to all private sales regardless of the facts. Right. I mean, now I might be just jumping to conclusions because we haven't seen this memo, but... You know, we need to be aware of this before it comes out.
0: It's all about how somebody interprets this language. And, you know, anybody who's gone to law school or studied the law at all, you know, everything is about definitions. I mean, this is just logic. So, how you define terms is everything because, you know, it's like, uh, what's a gun? And it could just be a hunk of metal with a number stamped on it that could qualify as a gun uh, if it's done correctly. And so, when they start defining uh, language that sort of sounds like something else to mean what they want it to mean to fit an agenda. That's when it gets dangerous, and that's when that's when the, the administrative state has run amok. We are being governed essentially by a dictatorship when that happens, when the executive well, branch can just cram down interpretations uh, instead of um, letting the General Assembly do it. That's when we run into problems, and not just in guns. I think this is in everyday life.
1: Well, you know, look, the Biden administration has said routinely they want background checks for all transfers of guns. If Congress wanted that, they need to pass it. We are not ruled, like you said, by this cabal of bureaucrats. And that's what this is becoming. And it's starting to piss people off, to be quite honest with you. Um, it is.
0: And, and, and by the way, Congress is complicit. And I will say that out loud. Congress is complicit. They are punting the ball of their job to the administrative bodies. And then Congress comes into session once or twice a year and bickers about something political and signs some omnibus spending bill to go borrow more money and spend it. Uh, and then they go home. So look, this is the job of the lawmakers. It's exactly like you said, Derek. If Congress had the votes to do this, then they would just do it. Instead, they're going to hide the ball in to use your terms, hide the ball in the administrative murk and uh, and then create an interpretive structure that can get that puts people in jeopardy, frankly.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I wish I had more information for everybody that's listening. Um, you can look this up. Uh, just Google Empower Oversight and guns, it'll come up. But um, this is from their website. Just want to read you a couple paragraphs real quick. Um, Empower Oversight has learned from sources that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms, and Explosives, that's the ETF, has drafted a 1,300-page document attempting to justify a rule pursuing citizens for the private sale of firearms. So whether or not that means all sales or limited sales, I'm not really sure. My understanding from other articles, it was all sales. Um, And it also says, empowers also learn from its sources that are drafting the document is reportedly uh, being overseen by senior policy counsel, Eric Epstein, who worked as the Phoenix field divisions counsel during operation wide receiver. You guys might remember this as a precursor to operation fast and furious. So let's put that guy in charge. That makes sense. Yeah, great. Good to (laughs) to know who's
0: good to know who's interpreting all our rules. So this is something they're not
1: trying to take your guns but they are but
0: they are exactly and this is something everybody should watch i mean look this stuff is happening so when people talk about draining the swamp or cleaning up the administrative state which is the way i like to say it like i i want the i'd rather put the government back in the hands where the instruction book that our founders gave us uh rightfully placed it and that's at congress right we didn't i don't see the article in the constitution that says the administrative state of government uh it's it's we've got three branches folks uh, we've got a branch that's more than capable of handling this kind of stuff. They ought to just do it. My humble yeah. opinion. All um. Right. All right. So follow. We'll we'll keep following that story. And uh, again, that's uh Empower Oversight, and you can check them out. What's their website? Derek Empower.us?
1: Uh, their website is e m-, p- m p o w r. US. Um. If you like, I said if you want to see, just type in Empower Oversight guns. It'll come up on Google.
0: Yep, they got a little story there. So. Um, I've been, you know, my near and dear to my heart is any criminal defense case or any criminal trial. And I've been watching this case a little bit up in Michigan. And for those who don't know the story, uh, a a lady named a mother named Jennifer Crumbly and her husband, by the way, were both charged with manslaughter up in Michigan because they supplied a gun to their son who later used it in a school shooting and killed a number of people was really a tragic scenario a few years back. I mean, awful, awful stuff. But what comes out as the case sort of progressed is that. The same day of the shooting, uh, the the parents were called into the school and had a meeting with school officials and the son because the son was writing and uh, drawing disturbing things on paper. I don't I don't remember the details, but basically a bunch of red flags and the parents like, look, uh, you gotta, maybe maybe should just take him home and the or the school is like, look, maybe you should just take him home. Parents are like, nah, we got to go to work, uh, but you know we'll we'll pick him up and uh, deal with this later tonight. Turns out about four days earlier, uh, they had given this their son. A firearm as a birthday present or some other gift, a, a, a handgun, I believe. Um, yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah,
1: yeah, that sounds that sounds right. I think everybody knows about this case. If you don't, you've been hiding under a rock.
0: Yeah, and the kid, the kid later after his parents left that same day, used it in a school shooting and killed killed I don't know how many people, but horrible. But the the sort of the controversial uh, part about this is not what the kid did. He's guilty of murder. He's doing life in prison. Um, it's what is that the parents were also charged for um, Mm -hmm. uh, not not like negligent entrustment, not um,
1: manslaughter, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, manslaughter, not a a form of murder, not furnishing a gun to a minor, not a charge like that, but actual manslaughter. Um, And, you know, I don't I don't know all the nuances of the law up in Michigan. And I'm going to get some commentary on it from uh, a friend who practices criminal defense up there. But this is a huge step, folks. I mean, it's like, you know, you have to you have to understand if, if you're a parent and you gave your your kid a gun you 99.99999% of the time, you're not doing it in order that the kid can go use it to kill people. You're doing it for other reasons. You know, maybe it's like you want to teach your kid firearm safety, uh, et cetera. But you know, the parents I'm going to assume, I think safely assume when they handed the gun over to their son, they weren't thinking, here you go, Sonny, go use it to commit crimes and kill people. I think, I think what they were saying is quite the opposite. Here's a gift. Use it safely and use it wisely. Now, there may have been red flags. There may have been um, mental health issues, mental health concerns. And uh, for that, the parents have both drawn a manslaughter charge, and mother has now been convicted of manslaughter, has not been sentenced yet. So keep following that. It's a very interesting story uh, from a criminal defense perspective. When, you, when you're charged with what I'm going to call some intent crime. So you know, if I'm going to commit a crime, usually you usually have to have two elements. One, you have to have an intent. Like You have to do it with some degree of mental knowingness. Uh, and then the other thing you have to have is an act. Well, here the act would be so giving the kid a gun or maybe not taking the kid home. But the intent is the tough one. Uh, so it has to be reckless or negligent here, and uh, it's a stretch of criminal law, I think, to call this manslaughter. I, look, and I'm not I'm not defending the morality of any of this. Uh, I'm only digging into the criminality of it. Uh, and how they charged it. But that's a very interesting scenario. And, and once things like this start happening, you can extrapolate this out. So, you know, back to the gun shops and, and owners of, of um, or even private citizens who sell guns to somebody else. How is your what is your responsibility? We would have to ask if the person to whom you sold a gun uh, went and later used it to commit a crime. Think about that. Think about how far removed it can get. Uh, If I, if I sell Derek a gun, Derek goes off the deep end in a couple of weeks and Mm -hmm. uses it to kill somebody. What is my responsibility there? Am I guilty of his murders or manslaughters? And then what are the, what are the dots that need to be connected if you're going to make that logical leap? And I don't have the answers I'm asking rhetorically because these are the things that get you thinking. And uh, it's important that we think about them. And, you know, I guess it it is worthy, more than worthy of mentioning Derek. Um, What the heck were they thinking? You know, it's like the school failed here. The parents failed here. Everybody failed well, here. You know, it's like,
1: well, her attorney failed from what I could tell. Well, and, and maybe, I, you guys can, There's a lot of TikTok videos in, on some of the poor uh, poor representation and some of the tactics she took in court. I think that she's you know, accused of flipping off uh, some family members in the audience.
0: Yeah, not a good um, tact.
1: Not a good tact. But at the end of the day, I, I don't know if I was doing closing. I mean, I would just I would really just hit hard. In my opinion steven this is me just playing armchair quarterback but i would have really hit hard on the fact that there's got to be parents on that jury people have to understand that preteens and teens do things that you cannot anticipate right. right i would have just hit that as hard as i could i mean convict somebody and have that criminal liability no, maybe she should be held liable let's talk about that right well liable I mean, is
0: one thing civil liable you know maybe that's one. i'm thing.
1: sorry cr- criminally liable okay i mean let's let's talk about it you know i mean there's there's been some uh, evidence, I believe, that was produced that, you know, they went in the morning of the shooting, uh, school called them in. There were some very clear warning signs and they they made a statement of something like we can't miss work today. We're not pulling him out of class. And he went and shot a bunch of students. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, like you said, I'm not here to, to, to justify the morality of what he did at all. I think what he did was hor- horrendous and a, a, abhorrent. And, um, you know, he should be doing exactly what he's doing, life in prison. Um, but it's an interesting legal question, isn't it? Should the parents be held liable for that?
0: Well, and look, criminally liable. Their their argument was, or her argument was, in part, uh, look the schools, the school officials put this kid back in class, right? Um, So here's a here's a broader sort of problem with what's going on in society, generally speaking. We as we as parents, we as individuals, we raise our kids the school should not do it for us. So we've given the school so much power, so much authority, so much uh, deference, I suppose, to make decisions for our kids, for us, for our kids even. And, and here you've got a school, several school officials saying, okay, and then they put them back into class. So you know, it's like how do they how does the, how does the school justify that? And you know there's a difference here between criminal liability and civil liability being sued for damages. But you know here the school took action too, and they're complicit in this mess. Um, now the difference is going to be that they probably didn't know about the gun four days ago. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a rightful distinction on some levels. But it, it does raise the specter here of when you punt your authority as a as a parent to the schools and uh, you think, wow, the school says it's safe for the kids to go back in. So I guess it's fine. You know, they must have done their due diligence. So good enough. Um, this is the kind of crap that happens. And, and by the way, we should clarify here neither Derek nor I are professing to know the answers, right? I no, mean, this, no. this is just one of those where we are opening up the floor for debate and discussion. And, uh, you know, certainly we're, send, a, send us your thoughts and opinions at munitionspodcast.com. We now have a an email interface where you can do that. So send us your thoughts. I'm curious what you think about it because this is, this is such a tragic scenario, uh, just crammed full of all sorts of political, um, personal, hor- horrible uh, pain. I mean, it's just a bad, uh, bad scenario.
1: Yeah, I I don't have answers like you said, Steve, either. It's it's a terrible situation, obviously, and I'm not even saying the court got it wrong. I mean, I wasn't in trial. I didn't look at the evidence. You know, we're playing armchair quarterback right here, but on its face, it it, it does get my antennae up and, and gives me cause for concern that, you know, parents could be held that, that severely criminally liable for another person's conduct. So yep. I'll leave it at that
0: all right well look um as always we've got the ammo can and it is a interesting coincidence because i got a question recently in the ammo can uh that is somewhat relevant to these topics and here in ohio we got the question um my 18 year old son went with his college buddies to a gun range and they fired a nine millimeter pistol um were they allowed to do that it was my understanding that uh, if you weren't 21, you weren't allowed, you are not allowed under Ohio law to actually have a handgun. Um, it's an interesting question. And when I asked Derek about this off the air, uh, I we it was a deeper dive than I thought. So Derek, take it away. What are your thoughts?
1: Sure. I love this question because everybody thinks they know the answer and they're just generally wrong. You can, you know, in the state of Ohio, at least, again, every state's different. We have to understand that at the get-go. And not all of our, our listeners are from Ohio, but this would encourage those not from HOD to dig deeper because in Ohio, you can possess a gun, a handgun under 21, and any gun under 18. The actual legality or the criminal act here is the transfer or the sale or purchasing of a firearm by somebody under those ages. So, uh, anybody under 18, um, it's illegal to transfer a gun to somebody under 18, any firearm. Doesn't matter if it's a handgun or a long gun. And if you're under 21, any handgun there's certain exceptions um the law actually says under 29.23. point i think it's two one says that one of those exceptions is for educational sporting hunting purposes to include but not limited to under the care of a in super care and supervision of a responsible adult okay so it doesn't re- define what a responsible adult is and in fact steve when you and i were talking an interesting little dichotomy kind of came up in our discussion and that was Well, my friend, my son and his friend, let's say his friend is 18, hands him a handgun. Is he acting as the responsible adult? And the answer is maybe.
0: Maybe. So look, how old do you have to be to be a responsible adult? And if I hand another 18 year old a handgun who otherwise I wouldn't be allowed to go buy it, what am I getting at? It just seems everything is so wonky when you have these kind of detailed statutes. Uh, right, so, statutes. so just,
1: just just to start from the juvenile's perspective, uh, there I foresee there'll be two potential crimes in these types of situations. One, it's clearly illegal for a juvenile to purchase a handgun if they're under 21 or to purchase a long gun or a handgun if they're under 18. So the act of purchasing the gun could be illegal, but let's say they're borrowing it, right? Um, that act is only generally illegal on the part of the person furnishing the firearm, right? It actually says in her 29, 23, uh, 21, 22, 211 is the purchasing statute. Two-one says no person shall sell any firearm to a person under 18 or furnish any firearm to a person under 18. Um, so the possession itself is not illegal by the juvenile. I always give the example Johnny is 16 years old. He lives in Tennessee, by the way, just an aside, I don't know Tennessee gun law very well, but let's say hypothetically, Tennessee allows when an older gentleman dies to bequeath all the firearms to the 16 year old and it's legal for the 16 year old to inherit those and possess those. Let's say that's a fact. Let's say Johnny then moves to Ohio when he's 17. Can he still possess that gun? The answer would be yes, because in the criminal code in Ohio, there is no criminal act. It's the sale or purchase of a gun. Well, let's say, let's change it to another hypothetical. Steve is buddies with this uh, 17-year-old and gives him a handgun uh, to use knowing he's not going to oversee his behavior and knowing that it's likely illegal. Has has the juvenile committed a crime? And Steve, I think you could speak to this. I think he could be complicit in the violation of the law that you have just committed. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So it, it took two people to commit that crime. I would have had to give the gun to the juvenile, and right. the juvenile gun would have had to accept it. So in theory, that's complicit. Now, the juvenile is probably committing some other offense because who would care unless he went and did something stupid with it? Uh, right. But this is usually – it's not unlike the Michigan scenario, really, um, except in Michigan, remember, it was a bigger leap. They charged manslaughter, not one of these types of crimes, not like furnishing a gun to a minor or a, somebody – who is uh, in Ohio? Somebody who's not twenty-one or old enough to have a handgun. So it, you know, it's a different. It, these are misdemeanors, and maybe a felony of fifth degree at the most. It's um, felony five. Yeah, so maybe a uh, a felony of fifth degree. These are lower-level crimes. Um, so th- this is a gray area. You know, I don't like the idea that you know if you're not twenty-one, you can't go buy a pistol, a, a handgun. Um, and if 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 you're a minor, you can't. You can't go buy uh, even any type of gun. So now the question is, if I go to a range with my buddies and we start passing around pistols, what's, what are the rules? And, and this is where things get really confusing. So it's a great question. And I think, like any other murky bit of prose, this, uh, this, the legalities of this are, um, are uncertain, I should say. So, look, I would only say be cautious. This is probably not a great practice. I, I think that's a whole different scenario if I'm going to take my son or even my son and his friends— to a range and let them shoot a nine millimeter pistol under the supervision of a, of a real adult me. Um, not somebody who just might fit the, fit the crime, but you know, it's sort of like uh, home inspections you, to, to do the minimum to meet the inspection requirements is one thing, but it's, it's always probably a better measure of when you get to the danger stuff, maybe do a little bit more than the minimum, you know? Make-
1: yeah, I, I agree. Um, the juvenile stuff's always kind of funny. I, I remember this. I first learned this when I was a very young attorney and I was doing a lot more juvenile work. And I had a a, uh, a delinquency case. Uh, the kid's actually a stellar adult now. He grew up and really matured, but he, he was adopted and he went through some things and uh, he had a charge uh, in- involving possession of black tar heroin. That um, was a big problem back in the uh, 2010s uh, around central Ohio. Uh, and in any event, during the pendency of that case, um, I got a call from uh, the sheriff's office that he was found with a handgun. And uh, I looked into it and um, I said, you know, you can't charge him with a crime. And, and the sheriff did agree with me because the deputy agreed with me because there is no crime. Yep. Possession is not illegal. So just, you know, keep that in mind. But that could always change. So obviously, if it's a year from now and you're looking to rely on that information, you should double check it.
0: Yeah. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap it up Till next time. We're going to try to get back at least once, maybe twice a month with Munitions Podcast. Where, But it, look, if there's uh, if it's too much time, feel free to go back and check, up the, check out the past episodes at munitionspodcast.com where they are all cataloged neatly and nicely right there, wrapped up in a bow for your consumption. Uh, So with that, we're going to wrap it up on this February 7, 2024 Munitions Podcast. Till next time, we'll see you.